Not everyone's always excited to go to Children's Church. Some of you are thinking, I want to go, and I'm too old to go, but if I haven't um, been able to meet you yet, if I don't know you yet, my name is Tim Dodge, and I'm one of the pastors here. Um, it's really good to see you guys here this morning. This, as Joe mentioned, has been um, a very heavy, hard week in the life of our church as we are grieving the loss of our, our dear friend and sister, Lindsay Edwards, and um, as we received, you know, friends and family from, from all over the place in the last few days, I, I wanted to pass along to you guys some of the, the things that were said to me, and over and above anything that was said, what I heard from, from friends who were far away and from family that was far away, is that we're so, we're so thankful for this church and the ways that they loved um, our friend Lindsay, our sister Lindsay, and so I wanted to make sure that you hear that as well. Um, that you have loved this family um, really, really well, um, that you have shown them the love of Jesus over these last three years, and I know that going forward, um, you're going to continue to do that for Jason um, and the boys, but I wanted to say thank you um, for showing up, thank you for um, bringing meals and sending prayers, and just for all the ways in which you've loved this family um, over the course of the last few years. We we are thankful, and they are thankful for you as well. Well, this is uh, the last Sunday, as Joe mentioned, of, of Advent, and uh, we've, been using, we've been looking at Isaiah uh, during the course of this season. Isaiah has been this prophet as our guide um, who really helps us navigate the this, this space in which we live, which is between the first and second coming of Jesus, uh, that, that we're in that space of the already and the not yet, that he has already come, and that he has entered into the darkness, and yet we are now waiting for him to come again and to make all things new, um, that we're waiting for him to return. And so this season of Advent is really that I'm remembering, but also looking and waiting. Um, waiting is not a passive thing in the Bible. Waiting is a very um, active thing that we're called to do, that it's hard to wait. Um, it's much easier to take matters into our own hands. And that's really what this passage um, is about this morning from Isaiah chapter 7, verses 10 through 16. This is God's word. Again, the Lord spoke to Ahaz, ask a sign of the Lord your God. Let it be as deep as Sheol or as high as heaven. But Ahaz said, I will not ask and I will not put the Lord to the test. And he said, Hear then, O house of David, is it too little for you to weary men that you weary my God also? Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and shall call his name Emmanuel. He shall eat curds and honey when he knows how to refuse the evil and choose the good. For before the boy knows how to refuse the evil and choose the good, the land whose two kings you dread will be deserted. The word of the Lord. Let me pray and ask his blessing upon it. Father, we thank you for your word. Um, we thank you for this season that we have been in, this season where um, we lament over the, the pain and um, the brokenness that we see all around us in this world um, where often we have been ones who participated in it and have brought it. 
And Father, we lament and we repent and we bring these things um, before you even now. Um, And we confess that you alone are our only hope. The hope of Emmanuel, um, God dwelling with us. Father, help us to fix our eyes uh, upon that hope. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. There's a a poem, well, there's a few poems by the poet uh, Wendell Berry that I love, but there's one that um, I especially love where he talks about this, basically a time in his life when he is very stressed and he feels like he's carrying a heavy load and he's describing what it's like to come back into the presence of his wife, um, who is a place of, of rest and who is a place of safety and who won't admit him with these burdens, but makes him put them down. And it begins, the first, it's only two stanzas long, but the first stanza says this. He says, love, all day there has been at the edge of my mind the wish that my life would hurry on. My days pass quickly and be done. For I felt myself a man carrying a loose, tottering bundle along a narrow scaffold. If I could carry it fast enough, I could hold it together to the end. I felt like a man who was carrying a loose, tottering bundle walking along a narrow scaffold. And you could see that imagery. If I could just, if I could just kind of hurry up, maybe I could keep it all together until I get to the end. And we know, we know what that feeling's like, don't we? Like we're carrying such a a large load and it feels like it might fall at any moment. And maybe it's this feeling that that time is against us, that time is our enemy, that maybe it's the feeling that the deck um, is stacked against you and you go through those seasons where it feels like good grief. At every turn, it seems like something is going wrong. Maybe it's the feeling just that there's too much to accomplish or too much to bear and you're just trying to hold it all together. If you've ever felt that way, if you've ever felt um, overwhelmed and overburdened by life, if you've ever felt that you've been tempted to despair, then you're in the right place, that this is a good place to come to. And this season in particular speaks, I think, to that feeling in a very pointed way. But what I want to ask you this morning is if you have been in that spot before, and I'm pretty sure that all of us have, what what do you normally do when you feel that way? Where does your heart go when you feel that way? What do you, what do you turn to? What does it typically lead us to? And I think if we're, if we're honest, normally when we feel that burden and we feel that stress and we feel like maybe our life, time is against us and our life is a little bit out of control, normally we're not in our best place, right? And normally we're looking for anything to relieve us of that load and to take that burden off of us and it often takes us down paths that we probably are better off not going down. It often makes us ask questions about, is God really near? Does he really care? Um, can, Can I really trust in his promises? And it's often pain in our life that sparks that seed inside of us that says we need to take matters into our own hands so that we can make the pain stop. I just want relief from it. Or it's fear that our lives are maybe going to be um, out of control or our lives are going to look different than they thought we thought they would or they're going to be um, undesirable or too difficult that leads us to make decisions that we think are going to bring comfort. Um, but if we've lived long enough, what we realize is that it usually, those decisions usually don't bring comfort. 
The idea that Advent presents to us is this idea that we are waiting on the Lord, that we are waiting on God. The idea that we are waiting upon His timing and that His timing is good and that He is good and that His promises are true and we can trust them and it can seem to us at times inconvenient at best and it can seem crazy at worst, can it? To wait on Him. I'm not sure what you think about when you hear um, verse 4 of this somewhat obscure little passage in Isaiah, I mean 14, because there's this, this one verse that jumps out at you, and it's this verse of this promise, this sign that is going to be given, that a virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. And when I hear that, what I hear is the music of, of Handel's Messiah. And it makes me kind of feel nostalgic, and it makes me kind of feel Christmassy. Um, but if we, if we let our mind go down that path, we forget what's actually happening in this passage. Um, because the setting of this passage, just like the setting of when Jesus um, is born, um, it's grim. It is dark. And so I want to think about the setting Uh, that this sign is given in this morning. And I want to think about the significance of that. And then I want to think about the sign itself. And so we got three S's for you. You're welcome. The setting, the sign, the significance, and the sign this morning. What is the setting? Well, the royal, and the setting of this passage is that the royal line of David um, is being threatened. That this promise has been given to the house of David that his throne is going to go on forever and ever and ever. You remember that because we looked at the life of David together this fall. But at this point in history, things are beginning to crumble. And the kingdom has been, the kingdom of God has really, his people have been divided into two kingdoms. And so you have this northern kingdom that's simply called Israel. And you have a southern kingdom that's referred to as Judah. And the kingdom of Judah it was the royal line of David. And Ahaz is the current king who is on the throne. Just a little bit about Ahaz. He, was, um, he came into power when he was about 20 years old. Um, quite young, right? You think about what you were doing when you were 20. Um, you weren't a king. Yeah, right. And so uh, he came to power. He was 20 years old. He, he reigned for 16 years and he was horrible. Um, he was an awful king. He was controlled uh, more by the fear of man than he was the fear of God. If you go back and read about him, particularly in 2 Kings chapter 16, you can see that he often had his own ideas about what was going to bring success uh, to Judah, um, and he would actively ignore God's commands and just do what he thought was right in his own mind. And one of the nastiest examples of that is that he, he burned his own son on an altar, um, He was horrible, something God obviously did not ask him to do. And Ahaz, at this point, um, was becoming afraid, and he was afraid for a few reasons, and one of them was that Assyria was a powerhouse nation. Um, You know, we read about these things, and we kind of, they seem so distant that we forget, no, this is like a war-torn land um, with real threats and real people dying. And Assyria is a powerhouse, and they are looking to take over everything. And so Syria and Israel are forming an alliance against Assyria. And they want Ahaz and Judah 
to join them. But Ahaz refuses because he's already made his own plans and he's already made an alliance with the enemy, with Assyria. That he sees Assyria, if they're the most powerful, then I want to be with them. I want to be where the political power is. Surely that's the thing that's going to bring deliverance and help to God's people. So Syria and Israel have mounted now then an attack upon Judah and Ahaz. And so Ahaz is now feeling the threat from Syria and Israel, but also the lingering doubt probably about his alliance with Assyria. Is this thing really going to happen? And he's convinced, though, that his buddying up to Syria was the, uh, Assyria was the right thing to do. And he's not going to be swayed even when God himself comes to him. And I think it's fair to say that he's carrying a tottering bundle down a narrow scaffold, right? I mean, the guy has to be pretty stressed out. And so Isaiah, the prophet, comes to him and says, listen, Ahaz, don't do this. Assyria is trouble. The kings of Syria and Israel, are, they're going to be overthrown anyway. You don't have to worry about forming an alliance with Assyria. You can trust God and you can trust in his timing. And so God actually says to him, if you don't believe me, Ahaz, then ask for a sign and I'll give it to you. And Ahaz essentially responds this way. He says, no thanks, I've got a great plan in place. Um, This seems to be the most logical thing to do. I'm going to stick to it. And he feigns kind of um, this religious obedience by saying, and I'm not going to put you to the test. But God is specifically saying to Ahaz, I am offering you a sign. And you are telling me you're not going to put me to the test. I'm asking you to. And Ahaz, no, 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 I'm too religious for that. So Ahaz is telling God essentially that he knows better. That he's going to trust his political alliance rather than waiting on God's deliverance. One commentator I read put it this way. said, the main threat to the house of David is the king who sits on David's throne. The one who is really afflicting the land is not Syria or Israel or Assyria, but Ahaz, the Davidic king. If Ahaz wants to see those promises of David realized, he has to trust Yahweh, God, He has to trust him and give up his fear, trust him and get out of the way and to see what Yahweh will do. So you see the setting is that Ahaz is in a bind. Ahaz is in crisis. And Ahaz is really having a hard time trusting that God is who God says he is and that he can actually depend upon him. And so what is the significance of that? Well, the whole story is important because it's about waiting on God's plan in the midst of crisis. Because frankly, sometimes it looks like God has lost his mind. And he doesn't remember his promises. That's how it feels down on the ground. And that's how Ahaz surely felt. And the temptation is to take matters into our own hands and to lean upon our own understanding. But here's the thing. The deception of sin is that the very thing that you think is going to set you free is actually the trap for your destruction. The very thing for Ahaz that he thinks is going to set him free, which is aligning himself with political power, is the very thing that actually is going to bring his destruction. And the call of faith is so simple and yet so hard. It is just to believe in God and to believe in his word and not in your own strategies or plans or even politicians. It's to trust in him. 
And God is showing us in this miracle, this sign that he's giving, that he wants to be with his people. That he is going to be with his people. And that he's weaving a plan through these impossible, horrific, tragic, destructive circumstances. And our job, Ahaz's job, is to trust him. And to follow his lead. But Ahaz wouldn't. And it was destruction for him and his house. And it's easy for us to look at Ahaz and go, what an awful, wicked person. And to not realize that we're just, we're no better. I'm no better than him. We're no better than him. Because we do the same thing every single day. The consequences just may not be as dire as they were for Ahaz. That, that we look at our own circumstances and our own choices reveal that we think that we know better. We think that we know what's best. But if we're honest, when we look at our lives and the lives of so many around us, we find that the destruction that we see in broken homes and bitter divorces and political fighting and violent wars, it often stems from the very same thing that was stirring in Ahaz's heart. What do you do when it looks impossible? What do you do when it seems like there's, there's no way out? When we're angry about others having maybe more than we do, or we're angry that other people have a life that looks easier than ours, or when we can't get someone else in our life, maybe a spouse or a sibling or a friend, to act the way that we want them to, and they just keep doing the thing that we don't want them to do, or when we're dealt a blow that's so inconceivable that we think God has abandoned his promises, what do we do? And you see, see faith often looks like carrying this tottering bundle into the presence of the one who sits on the throne above all things, and sitting it down at his feet and resting and waiting and knowing that his promises are true. And so he gives Ahaz, even though Ahaz doesn't ask for it and is refusing it, he, God says, I'm going to give you the sign anyway. And one of my old professors put it this way. He said, Ahaz's fear, the people's terror, God's offer of a sign and Ahaz's refusal to be a trusting, worshiping leader have all brought us to the point where David's house is going to be destroyed. And it's just there, right there at the edge of this precipice that God shows how he will fulfill his promise despite the rejection of God's word by Ahaz. What Ahaz has refused to ask for, God grants. And the sign probably sounds a little ridiculous, doesn't it? I mean, to to Ahaz, who's sitting in this impossible situation, the Syrians look like a much more plausible solution to the immediate problems than a virgin-born son. But what Judah needed and what God is trying to relay to Ahaz is what you need is a true king. What you need is a true Messiah. What you need is a true Savior, a king who would trust in the Lord in time of crisis, a humble king who would say in his darkest hour, not my will, but your will be done. And what you and I need is a true king. If we were capable of making the right decisions on our our own, his coming would not be necessary. The setting of Jesus' birth was grim, just like the news that is delivered to Ahaz at this time. The timing seems off. 
it seems late. It's one of the songs that we sing around this time. Late in time, behold, he comes. Man, we've been waiting forever. Even his character, Jesus' character and his nature and his place in society, it seems all wrong. But it was all perfectly, intricately correct. This is how God is with us. He came to be with us in a way that no one would have expected and no one would have envisioned. He came in one of the most bleak of situations. He came in the form of a servant who was crucified by the state. And he came in the midst of your darkest night so that he might bring you hope this very morning. And Advent is about believing and waiting on that hope and bringing that hope to bear upon whatever it is you are walking through at this present moment. That the hope is that real and the hope is that true that even though you might, you're, you might have tears running down your face, that you can, you can also smile at the future because you know what is coming. That he's returning to make all things new. When I was a campus minister, and I'll end with this, um, at Furman, one of my students was diagnosed with cancer. And we honestly didn't think that she would make it through the year, much less the, the six years that were given to her that were such a gift. One of the things she wanted more than anything, I remember her telling me, is that she just she wanted to get married. Um, and she did. And at her funeral... Her young husband, who had not been married to her that long, spoke, and he told a story that I want to leave you with. Um, Perrin was her name, and much like Lindsay, she was one who suffered much, and she's one who taught me a lot about hope in the midst of pain. And this is what he said. He said, it was the week before Easter, after a difficult doctor's appointment, after finding out that the cancer was growing and it wasn't going to end well. We were both quiet in the car, and I looked over, and I could tell that she was deep in thought. So I asked her what she was thinking. And she said, with Easter coming up, I can't help but think about how the disciples must have felt. And he said, I had no idea what she was talking about. Why were you thinking about that in this moment? And I was confused, and I asked her to explain, and she said, think about how they must have felt on Friday, everything that they had given their lives to, everything was falling apart around them. Their leader, the person they thought would change the world, was dead. They probably felt so abandoned and confused. And on Saturday, they didn't even know what they were doing, but they were just waiting. They were waiting for something to happen that they couldn't dare hope for. They were waiting to see what would happen to their lives and to the world around them. But then Sunday happened. They could never have imagined what God was up to. And out of all the chaos and all the despair, he brought life. He took the worst thing imaginable and he turned it into the greatest victory of all time when everything seemed more lost than it ever had been before. God gave them hope. So today is just Friday, and I can't wait until God gives us Sunday. Let's pray.
Father, your hope, the hope that we have through the finished work of your son Jesus is so sure that we can trust you no matter how dark it may sometimes seem here. And Father, we know that all of your people have experienced that, that they have experienced times when they thought um, that maybe you weren't listening or maybe you didn't care or maybe you didn't know. And yet, Father, over and over again, you have proved yourself faithful and your promise is true. And Father, none greater than in the coming of your son Jesus that was so unexpected that many couldn't bear to swallow it. And yet Jesus was obedient even to the point of death, even death on a cross, because of his love for people like us. Father, we thank you that Jesus did not remain in the grave, but he rose again. We thank you that he is even now at your right hand, and he intercedes for us, and we thank you that he is coming again with power. And Father, we long for that day. Our hope is in that day. And in the meantime, Father, help us to follow even his command to us that we love one another as he has loved us. It's in his name we pray. Amen.